Well, once upon a time, there lived a rich and a powerful king who fell in love with a poor and humble maiden. This king was so powerful that there was no one in his kingdom that was not intimidated by his presence and his power. So begins the story that was told by the late great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. He continues, yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. Now, in an odd sort of way, being a mighty king created a real problem in declaring his love for this humble maiden. If he brought her to the palace and he covered her head with jewels and her body with robes of royalty, she would not resist. No one would dare resist this king. But would she truly love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she really? Or would she live with him in fear? nursing a private grief for the life she left behind. How could he ever know if she was truly happy by his side? He thought if he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort, waving brightly colored banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted an equal, a lover. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she was a humble maiden until that shared love crossed the gulf between them. But the king was convinced he could not elevate the maiden to his level without crushing her freedom. So he resolved to descend to her level. Thus he clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito. It was not a mere disguise, but a new identity the king took on, setting aside his throne to win her hand. Kierkegaard was a Christian. And that story that he wrote was drawn from Philippians chapter 2 that we're going to be looking at today. In Philippians chapter 2, what we're going to find today in verses 5 through 11 is not a fairy tale, but instead is a fact of how much God loved us and what he was willing to do to show his great love for us. I invite you to look with me at Philippians chapter 2 as we read verses 5 through 11. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this passage reveals for us one of the most amazing and most difficult truths for us to understand in the scriptures. Theologians call this the great kenosis passage because the Greek word keno describes the self-emptying of Christ. Others will talk of this as the hypostatic, hypostatic union where the theantropic Christ came to earth, theos being God and anthropos meaning man, so the theantropic is the God-man. Now, those are all big words, and they can, they can seem intimidating to us, but what we're going to find today is that this is not some passage, uh, cosmic concept that theologians sit in a corner and discuss, but it's something that has practical application for us today. In fact, in verse 5, we're told what God wants us to do with this truth. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In this passage today, what we are called on to do is to follow Jesus Christ's example and to humble ourselves. 
Now, what does it mean to humble ourselves? Andrew Murray offers this definition. He says, humility is not thinking meanly, that is, little of ourselves. Rather, it is not thinking of ourselves at all. If you were here last time, we talked about humility, and we saw that humility is a willingness to set aside our own preferences where we give priority to others. You see, humility is not looking down on ourselves like we're dirt or a worthless worm. That's self-deprecation. What true humility is, is not stooping until you're smaller than yourself. Rather, it's to stand at the full measure of your, your stature, but then to compare yourself with something that is greater than you. And as you see what is greater than you, it shows the real smallness of your greatness, doesn't it? And what we're told to do today is to look at Jesus Christ, the one who gave us the greatest example of what humility is, and then we are to model that. By looking at Christ, we not only find our standard, but also our greatest example. And in this passage, we see how Jesus went from heaven to earth, how he gave up his crown for the cross. And he did that to save us, to demonstrate his great love for us. In verse 6 it says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now as we read that Jesus Christ was in the form of God, you may think of John 4.24. In John 4.24 it tells us God is spirit. And sometimes we say, what, what does it mean for, for God to take on form if he's, if he's spirit? How, how does all that come together? There was a great theologian that passed by the name of Augustine, and he was walking on a beach one day, and he was, he was trying to understand God, trying to grasp what all this meant. And as he was walking along the beach, he, he noticed a little boy that was, had a pail and this little boy had, had dug a hole in the sand a little bit of uh, a couple of feet away from where the waves were. And he was running over and he'd scoop up a bunch of water and he'd run over to the hole and he'd pour it in the hole. And then he'd run back and he'd get another bucket of water. And he back and forth, Augustine just watched this little boy running, 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 doing this. And finally he said, son, what are you doing? And the little boy looked at Augustine and, and he said, I'm, I'm putting all of the ocean in this hole I made. And at that moment, Augustine said he realized what he was trying to do. He was trying to take this infinite God and put him in this little hole of his mind. And he realized he couldn't do it. There was another theologian and philosopher by the name of Anselm, and he wrote something called the ontological argument. And, and he said, God is greater than that which can be conceived. God is greater than that which can be conceived, is how he summed it up. And what he essentially is saying is, think your greatest, biggest thoughts of God. And when you think you've got that, he says, it's fallen short of who God really is. In short, friends, what we're trying to do today is explain the unexplainable. Now, you're thinking, well, if that's the case, then let's just go home. <clears throat> now, as I mentioned before, this is not some nebulous concept for seminarians to debate, but it has application for us. It has application that Paul has already told us, because back in Philippians 1.16, we saw that he says we are appointed for the defense of the gospel. And then in chapter 1, verse 30, he said we are to share in his conflict. And you'll remember that that was a, a word that we saw described the playing field of athletics. And we talked in that message how God wants us to get out of the stands and onto the playing field. 
And what God is saying to all of us today as believers is, we are to be those who are able to defend the truths of who he is and what his word says. So in short, let me put it this way. If I were to take and close my Bible today and walk out that back door, how many of you could come and stand in this pulpit and explain what the kenosis means? Now, Pastor Steve Troxell, who was here for 34 years, he's, he's back there, so Steve could come up here and do that. But how many more of you would feel competent to come up here and do that? Now, you may be saying, well, Roger, I'm, I'm never going to stand in that pulpit and preach, so I don't, I don't have to worry about this. Well, let me tell you how maybe you need to worry about this, how this has real-world application for you. Recently, there was a knock on my door at home. And when I opened the front door of my house, there were two ladies who were standing there. And they had some literature in their hand. And, and they said, we want you to have this. And they, they handed it to me and they turned and they were about to leave. And I said, excuse me, wait a minute. Uh, what is this? Now, I knew what it was. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. And what they like to do is drop stuff off and then leave. And I said, I, I, I want to talk to you about this for a minute. I said, can you explain to me what you've given me? And as I began to engage them in a conversation, uh, of course, we got to who Jesus Christ is. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so, as we were, were talking to them, as I was talking to them about this, uh, there were two women, and one of them was named Connie. And, and I could tell Connie was really listening to what I was saying. The other woman, you could tell, had her pat, you know, defenses and answers, and, well, you know, we'll just pray about this and we're going to leave. But this other lady was intrigued and wanted to continue the conversation. And, and finally, uh, this lady, Connie, looked at me and she said, what do you do? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm a pastor. And the other lady said, I knew it. <laughs> she said, people don't know these things. And then this other lady, Connie, said, why don't you pastors teach your people these things? And you know why pastors often don't teach these things? It's because they're afraid when you go real deep, you're going to see a deep sleep come across the faces of the people in the pews. And I know that's a danger this morning. Some of you are already checking out or thinking about the Spurs game tonight. Um, so if you're going to fall asleep and snore, that's okay. Just don't do it so loudly that you disturb the person next to you. Now, it's not just the Jehovah's Witnesses that we need to know this for. Friends, this is one of the foundations of our faith. This is an essential truth that all of us as believers need to know. And, and it, it's something that you're going to find when somebody knocks on your door, not just when the Jehovah's Witnesses are there. Recently, I had two men, two Mormons who were standing on my door. And again, we engaged in the same conversation, and after about 45 minutes, one of them said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And as you talk to Mormons, they're going to use language that sounds very similar to us. If you say, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? They'll say, yes, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. Now, their definition of Jesus is different than our definition of Jesus. <clears throat> you see, they believe, as you get below the surface, that each of them, as men, can become a son of God as well. That they, in fact, can become gods themselves who will be given a planet to populate. And so when you talk about the Son of God with a Mormon, you think you're saying the same thing if you really don't understand what the Son of God is and what it means for him to take on flesh and blood. To begin with, we need to quit thinking in our terms. 
When you hear the word form, what do you think about? You might think of form-fitting clothes, or maybe you're a golfer and you say, well, that person had good form as they followed through in their swing. But when we talk about form here, it has nothing to do with shape or size. What it's talking about is nature and essence. The Greek word that is used here for form is morphe. And, and morphe means the inward character of something, as well as the outward expression of that character. It is the inward character of something that has the outward expression of that character. It is the nature and essence of God that we're dealing with here. Now, Greek philosophy said it connoted that which is intrinsic and essential to a thing. When we're told here that Christ was in the form of God, the theological truth, the cookies on the bottom shelf way of understanding this is that it's telling you is Jesus Christ is God. And when he was in the form of God, it's because he is God. And then we're told how Jesus Christ became a man. In John 3.16, we're told the purpose for that. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Why did God give his son, Jesus Christ, as a human being to walk the earth? It's because he had to go to the cross having flesh and blood, Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In order to be the sacrifice for our sins, he had to be in a physical form, and he had to be sinless. Now, I told you that the Mormons will tell you that they believe he's the son of God, but they also believe they can become sons of God. But the problem is they deny the truth of the Scripture because when it says the only begotten son of God, what you find is the Greek word monogenes. The word monogenes means a unique in kind, literally something that is the only example of its category. When you hear that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, it means there is only one and will only ever be one God-man. Friends, we cannot become gods like God. And so Jesus Christ is in form and in essence fully God, fully man. Now, as I talked to the women that day who were Jehovah's Witnesses, I told them this as well. Now, the passage that you can go to if you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, John chapter 10, verse 30. In John 10, 30, Jesus Christ says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, if they open their Bible to you, what you'll find is they've mistranslated the passage. They've played with the Greek text, and they've made it to say something that it's not really saying there. Now, at that point, I usually get my Greek Bible off my shelf in my study, and I bring it out, and I say, well, you told me that. Show me that here. And what is that? Well, that's the Greek text you're telling me it says. And they go, I can't read that. Now, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to be able to show them what they're saying is in error. You don't have to parse the text. You don't have to be able to read it. All you have to do is take them to the very next set of verses, because in John 10, 30, it says, I and the Father are one. They play with the text, and you may go, I don't know what to do with that. Well, just go down to verse 31, because in John 10, 31 through 33, it says, after Jesus made that statement, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. You see, there was no doubt at all with the Jews 
that Jesus was claiming to be God. And that's all you have to show them. Say, well, the Jews knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And it's about that time they usually say, we've got to go. Now, Jesus was God, and Jesus is God. And if you go to the beginning of the Gospel of John, you see that fully as well, because it says in John 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning was the Word, that's speaking of Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. You go a little bit further down into verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten, there's that word again, monogenes, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus existed eternally in heaven. But then there became a point where God stepped out of heaven onto earth. And he became flesh. He took on flesh and blood. Jesus took on flesh we could see, which is what Philippians 2.6 tells us. It says, before he existed in the form of God. Now, this was not just some past tense event, but it continues in the present. This is a present active verb in the text. And what that means is to be, to exist, to possess. Paul is saying Jesus Christ is existing in the form of God, always has and always will. Even when he took on flesh, he was still fully God. Now, it then says, Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, we don't have time to cover all of the areas of the doctrine of the Trinity here, but let me address a misconception that I sometimes hear among Christians. They, they think of the Trinity as God the Father being kind of in the number one position, so you can think of it in terms of medals. God the Father is the gold medalist, Jesus Christ is the silver medalist, and God the Holy Spirit is the bronze medalist. But the concept is that the scriptures tell us God exists in three distinct persons that are all co-equal. So it's more of a team gold medal concept. If you picture them all on the gold level of the platform, they exist together. Now, it says God did, Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. When it, when it says this, the word grasped is arpagmos. Now, this is a unique word. This is the only time it's ever found in the Bible. And the word literally means robbery. It also describes a prize or booty, something that could be looted or taken. But the, the meaning of the word is robbery. So what it's saying is Christ did not try to rob God of his, of his position, of his status. <clears throat> now, to understand what this means... You can, you can think of terms of people who did try to rob God. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? And God said, you can have any tree. You can eat of anything in the garden except for one. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Satan came along, and what did he say to the man and woman? Well, well God doesn't want you to eat of that tree. Why? Because when you eat of it, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Remember that? And so what they said is, we want to rob, we want to take something that we do not possess that belongs to God. And so they ate of the tree, they sinned. Now, the prize, the reward they got for that was, was not being elevated into God's position, but instead they were thrown out of the garden. And that was because of God's mercy and grace, because he said, if they eat of the tree of life, and they remain eternal in their fallen state, it will be a very bad thing for them. 
And so it was because of God's mercy that he removed them from the garden. Now, there's another place where we see a robbery taking place or an attempt, and that's in Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 through 15. There we find Satan himself who is trying to rob God. And it says in Isaiah 14, 12, how have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? This is Satan. He says, you have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recess of the pit. Satan tried to rob God. He tried to take his position, his place. And what he received was removal from the place he had in heaven. Now, when it comes to Christ, Christ was not trying to grab something that was God's. As God, he already had it. It was already his. What we find instead in verses 9 through 11 is not Jesus being removed from heaven. Rather, he willingly stepped down out of heaven. And he came to earth. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. He took the place of one of the creation in order to save the creation. And the result will be ultimately that Jesus will be elevated to the highest point in heaven, as we're going to find Jesus was willing to set aside his position and the privilege of exercising his attributes to come to earth and save us. The word grasped here is not talking about taking something that was, wasn't his. What it's talking about is possessively holding on to something that is already yours. We have pictures of this right now as we, we look at Assad over in Syria. He's the ruler of the country. And what he's trying to do is to hold on to something, even killing his own people, in order to stay in power. That's not what Jesus Christ did. He took what was his position, his power, and he said, I'm going to open my hands and I'm going to release it. When we think of earthly rulers, many seize power or hoard their riches for their own good. But when the son of, it came to the Son of God, he let go of it for you and me. Before we talk more about what this means, I want to ask you a question. What is it that you're grasping onto today? What is it that you're holding on to? It could be something you already have and you're trying to keep, or it may be something you're chasing after, a title, a position, a relationship you want. What are you grasping? What, what are you saying, this is so important to me, I am unwilling to let it go? Whatever it is, remember verse 5, it says, we are to have the same attitude as Christ, willing to lay aside those things. <clears throat> so what I want you to do when you get home is just take a piece of paper and, and, and write out on it, I have a right to. I have a right to. And then list out all the things that, that you believe you have a right to. Things that you get to hold on to. Things that you're at, at whatever cost you're willing to hold on to. And after you make your list, I want you to take your paper and then I want you to crumble it up. And I want you to hold it in your hand, but then what I want you to do is to turn your hand like this. I want you to let go of it. To empty yourself of what you have a right to. Because, friends, that is what Jesus Christ did for us. 
He had a right to those things. But what he said is, I'm willingly opening my hand and releasing those. And he left heaven and he came to earth and he took our place. Have the same attitude as Christ. As as you think about what you'd write on that paper, I, I know it may be hard to give up some of those things, but remember what Christ gave up for us. It says in Philippians 2.7, but Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, as we think about Jesus leaving his place in heaven to come to earth, remember that he didn't let go of being God. Now, this, this is a hard thing. This is a, a, a difficult concept to understand. And any illustration I can give you, again, to try to explain the, the unexplainable is going to fall short. But let me see if I can maybe help illustrate what this means. Uh, imagine for a moment that this, this represents Christ. And, and in it are a bunch of ice cubes. And and the reason I have ice cubes in there is because when you think of God, and you think of what makes God God, it's his his attributes. You you think of things like his omniscience. It's a a word that means he knows everything, omni, all. And so we, we think when Christ emptied himself, he began to remove his attributes. So we took out his omniscience. We we think of his omnipotence, which means he's all powerful, and we take that out. And, and you can go attribute by attribute, and, and you, can, you can remove all these attributes because it says God emptied himself. And so ultimately we're thinking, you know, more and more he began to remove the things that, that made him who he was. Now maybe we're thinking, well, wait a minute. He, he demonstrated his great love to the point he was willing to go to the cross and die for us. So, so maybe we need to put his love back because, you know, that, that was demonstrated. But friends, the reality is what we need to do is we need to put them all back. Because if you removed even one thing that made God God, he was no longer God. Now, if that's the case, how how did God empty himself? How how did he become one of us? How, How did he take on what it means for us? When when you think of the word emptying here, you need to understand this word. It's the Greek word keno. That's the verb form of kenosis. And it means to empty. And the word literally means to divest himself of his privileges and self-interest, but not his deity. Now, the interesting thing about this word keno is it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't simply describe removing something. We, we see that he emptied himself, but then we're told that he took on the form, right? This is the word lambano, and that word means to take or to receive. Now, when you take or receive using this word, the idea is that of an exchange. No, that's not right. That's what we often think of. God exchanged godhood for manhood, no. You see, the idea is not that of an exchange. Rather, it communicates an addition. The word lambano means to, the self-emptying permitted the addition of humanity. Now, again, I know this is, this is huge stuff, so walk with me. You're getting a four-year seminary degree in one sermon. <laughs> now, what it says is, the self-emptying permitted the addition of humanity but it did not in any way involve the subtraction of deity. So remember, we have Christ 
who physically showed up on earth in the form, the outside of a man. And what it means to us, as hard as it is to fully understand is, God essentially, think of this towel as being flesh and blood. And, and what it says is, Christ didn't remove his deity. He was still fully God. But what he did was he wrapped his deity in flesh and blood. He took on the form of a man. He was still fully God in, nat in nature and essence, and yet he also took on fully the form and nature and essence of what it means to be a man. We read the scriptures that he was hungry, he was tired. He, he took on our form with all its limitations. He humbled himself to the form of a baby in the incarnation originally, having to have his mother and father care for his basic needs as a man. The self-emptying permitted the addition of humanity, but it did not remove the subtraction of deity. Now, we see an example of that in Matthew 4, 3, because there when Satan said to Christ, if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. He says, okay, if. Now, we've talked about statements of fact in the past, first-class conditions and other things. What he's saying is, look, Jesus, you're God. Uh, you you want to show your God? Then he was, remember, during that time of temptation, physically hungry, and he said, here's, here's rocks, just make some bread. Satan knew that, that Jesus didn't remove his power. It was still there. What he said is, it's there, so let's see it. Now, Jesus took on the limitations of man, so what he did was he suspended the exercise of that ability, and he didn't do it. Jesus had not lost his power. He was suspending its use. We see that when his mother Mary came to him at the wedding feast, and the friend had run out of wine, and it was going to be a huge embarrassment for the family. And Mary said to Jesus, help them. And, and Jesus said, Mother, it's not my time. It's not time for me to manifest my power. And she said, help them. And God honored his mother by turning the water into wine. That was an exercise of his power over creation to change elements. Now again, he, he did it in a controlled fashion. In Luke chapter 2, people sometimes say, well, what about his omniscience? Did Jesus know he was God? Do you remember in Luke chapter 2, when he was still a boy, they traveled to Jerusalem, and, and then they went back in the caravan, and as they're journeying back, Mary and Joseph are going, have you has anybody seen Jesus? Well, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. And they search around. They go back to the city of Jerusalem and they search for days. And finally they find him and, and they go, Jesus, what are you doing? Why'd you do this to us? And what did he say in verse 49? Did you not know that I'd be in my father's house? His omniscience. How many times do you read in the scriptures where he's in somebody's home or he's dealing with the, the religious leaders who are trying to trick him or other things and it says what? He knew what they were thinking. Jesus contained omniscience. He just veiled it. He didn't always exercise those things. <clears throat> when it says he took the form of a slave, as hard as it is to imagine, this is the picture. We have God fully there, but somehow veiled, somehow contained in the flesh. Now, how could God be contained in a human body? Friends, this again is where our finite minds can't grasp an infinite God. I'll tell you at the end of the day, like Augustine, I'm the little boy with the pail of water trying to put it in a hole going, maybe I'm going to contain all of God in my little hole, and I can't. But I know it happened. 
Because Colossians 1.19 tells us this. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness. You see that? All the fullness to dwell in him. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You see, mankind was looking at God when they saw Jesus. They just didn't know it. Do you remember the exchange with the disciples in John 14, 9 through 10? Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you? And yet have you not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? When, when Jesus walked the earth, people could not see his deity except for one instance. If you read... Um, in uh, Matthew chapter 17 and Mark chapter 9, there the transfiguration took place. Do you remember where he took a few of the disciples? He went up onto the mount, and for a brief instance, they saw the full glory of God being revealed, and they were blown away. I love Peter. Peter's always, you know, just respond. This is great. Let's build some homes and live up here forever, Jesus. <laughs> you know, we don't want to leave this. This is great. They saw the glory of God just for an instance. The, the veil was pulled back just enough to give them a crack of the glory. They, they had the, the fullness of, of God. Just suddenly there was a little peak, and as the light burst forward, they said, wow. We see the deity in the flesh. Now, as you think about this, and, and what it means for Jesus to exist in this form and, and yet for people not to see it. This is a very poor example, but you hear me sometimes talk about being a policeman. And here's a picture back, back in that day. Now you can see how pale I am. I used to work midnight to eight, and I also had black hair back then. I don't know what happened. But if, if you saw me dressed like this, walk up to your car window, what's your immediate thought? It's not, are you a policeman? It's, how fast did you get me going? <laughs> right? Now, if you saw me in uniform, you would know my position. But when I would finish a shift, I would go back to the police station, I'd take off my uniform, and I'd put on civilian clothes, and I'd go out and get, I'd get in my car, and I'd drive home. And if you were to look at me at that moment, you wouldn't be able to pick me out of a crowd and say, you're a policeman. But in my wallet, I had a badge. I had a warrant of appointment. I usually had a, a gun on me. I was still a policeman. You just couldn't pick me out of a crowd. There were a couple instances where I had to arrest somebody off-duty. There was a, a serious crime taking place in front of me, and, and while people couldn't see that I was a policeman, I suddenly exercised my role as a policeman. And this is essentially Jesus Christ. People didn't see him in his uniform. He was still fully God, but people didn't know that just by looking at him because he was veiled in flesh. The average person couldn't pick out that Jesus was God, but do you remember in the garden when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus? And Peter was there, and he whips out his sword, and he hacked off the ear of the servant, and, and what did Jesus say to him? Peter, put it away. He says, could I not call down legions of angels in an instant? You see, he, he still had control. He was still fully God, but what he said is, I've suspended the use of who I am. Peter put it away. 
He, he was in the boat that time as the storm was raging. The disciples said, we're going to sink, we're going to die. Do something. What, they wake Jesus up. Aren't you afraid? And what did Jesus do? Be still. And in an instant, the creation said, we see the creator, we listen, and it was calm. Smooth as glass. Jesus was fully God and yet fully man. And he suspended the use of his God attributes at times. As Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus set aside his position, took on the uniform of a man with all its limitations. And as Paul describes Christ becoming man, he says in Philippians 2.7, being made in the likeness of men. Now here he doesn't use the Greek word morphe that we saw earlier. Remember the word that speaks of the nature and essence of God? Here what he uses is another word. It's homeomati. Homeomati is a word that means something that is the same, yet is different. Something that is the same and yet different. He was in the likeness of man, something that is the same and yet different. Now, it's, it's a, a word that he chose specifically because Paul could have used the word icon. The Greek word icon literally means a more exact likeness. He didn't say Jesus was in the, the more exact likeness of a man where he was fully in the intrinsic essence and nature of man. This is the word that was used in Colossians 1.15 where it says, He is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see that? He says he is in the exact likeness of God because he is God. Here what he says is, he's in the likeness of man, something that is the same and yet different. Because the internal part of who he is is still fully God as well as fully man. Now, as we think of Christ being the same and yet different from us, how does this really work out? Well, we find it in Hebrews 4.15. Because it says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Do you see what Jesus did? He became fully man. He went through this life and he dealt with all of the limitations as well as temptations of this life. And yet it says, while he was fully like us, he was different. How was he different? He never sinned. And yet what Romans 3.10 tells us is, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He is the monogenes, the unique, one-of-a-kind God-man who not only was fully God and fully man, but he is also the unique one who has walked this earth who has never sinned. There is only one, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why he came. It says, in being found in appearance as a man in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus come? Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to pay the penalty of sin. And that somebody had to be one who was perfect, who did not owe the penalty himself. And there was only one, Jesus Christ. And so it says that Jesus humbled himself. He left his throne in heaven. He, the creator, became one of the creation. And if that wasn't humbling enough to have the limitations of flesh, it says he went even lower. 
He became the lowest slave. Remember when he washed the disciples' feet? He humbled himself to that lowest point. But that wasn't even as low as he would go. Because he ultimately went to the cross. The cross that was the lowest place of humility. It was the place of punishment in that day for the worst kind of criminal. It was a place of humiliation. Where you would suffer, where you were stripped naked, where you were beaten, where you were mocked and ridiculed. And you suffered an excruciating death. And it says that's how low he humbled himself. And why did he go there? To save me and you. Because we owed a penalty of sin called death. And that's why Jesus came. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's the place that Jesus took. Now when Jesus could go no lower, God put him in a position in which there can be none that is higher. Look at verses 9-11. through 11. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, this passage in Philippians began in eternity with Christ in his rightful place as God in heaven, and it ends in eternity with God in his rightful place. When it says that he was given the name above all names in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven than that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is only through Jesus Christ. And for all of us who will willingly humble ourselves, and how do we humble ourselves? It's by willing to say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm not good enough to get to you by the way I live my life. You, God, took my place, and I need you. I need you as my Savior. And without you, God, I know I am lost. I am far from you. And today, God, I am willing to humble myself and acknowledge I cannot get to you except through Christ. And so I declare myself a sinner, and I receive your great gift of mercy and grace. I accept you, Jesus, to be my Savior. There is a day coming if we refuse to do that when you will acknowledge Jesus for who he is. When it says those who are under the earth, it is those who are in the place of judgment, separation from God. And what Hebrews 9.27 tells us is this, and as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And at the moment you die, the question will have already been answered whether you accepted Jesus or not. It is too late once you've died. I open by saying, once upon a time, there was a king who loved a humble maiden. Friends, that was a fairy tale. But what we've seen here today is that once upon a time, there was a king who humbled himself and died upon a cross to save you and me. And that is the truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The question today is, have you accepted his great gift? Have you done as Romans 10, 9 says, where if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Friends, if you've never taken that step of faith, if you've never accepted the sacrifice of the one who died for you, I invite you to do so now. I want to close by praying a prayer. And what I'm going to do in this prayer, you don't have to walk the aisle. But what we're going to say to God is, I'm a sinner. 
That just means you've made mistakes in your life, whether you've stolen a cookie, lied, done anything worse. Sin is sin to God. And as a sinner, you owe a penalty called death. And what you recognize today is that Jesus Christ died for you. The whole reason God left heaven to come to earth was to go to that cross and take your place. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you'd like to receive God's great gift of new life to you, then I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm a sinner. And because of that, I know I've fallen short of your standard of perfection. I recognize that I owe the penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you love me so much, that you came to die for me, that you took my place, that you went to the cross and paid that penalty of death for me. Today, Lord Jesus, I'm turning from my sin into you to be my Savior. I accept your great gift of new life. Thank you for making me a part of your family. And I pray now, Jesus, you would help me to walk with you and to live my life in a way that reflects my new life in you. Thank you again for this great gift of new life through my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, you see prayer leaders at the front, I'll be here. I would love to talk to you to make sure you understand that step of faith you just took. We want to give you a Bible. We want to help you to take the next steps of growing in your new life. For the rest of us who know Jesus Christ, what God calls on us to do is to go out into the world and share the good news of who he is and what he's done for us. So go and share the good news of new life. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.